0: May that be true of our hearts, that we would seek to know your word, that we would this morning, as we listen to the, the preaching from your word, that our hearts would be turned to you to say, yes, Lord, to what you would say to us. Lord, I pray that you would be with many of those in the room this morning who are uncomfortable, snuggling, that this would be a, a time where our minds would hold fast to your word. Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I said snuggling. (laughs) Yep. Some of you love snuggling, so this is just perfect for you. And the 99% of other people are not comfortable this morning. But I'm really grateful that we have an overflow room that regularly, besides this morning, gets to be used. And so some of you now can really appreciate the blessing of that But, you know, I I think there's actually, just to be candid with you, I think there's something really special about being in one room here. And for those of you watching um, live, uh, we can think of several of you right now. We miss you, wish you were here with us. But there's something special about being together in in one room again. And so, I'm really grateful this morning. Well, lying... Telling lies, being dishonest has become a very normative thing. It's just accepted. But more than that, it's taught. And some of you young parents have faced the frustration of hearing your, your child's cartoon or TV show explaining why lying is okay. When our kids were younger and, and watching simple educational shows or just cute kids' cartoons, we always had our ears open because eventually we'd we'd have to stop a show and tell our kids why the show was wrong. I remember several instances when Kim would call me really frustrated because the show our kids were watching had adult figures telling child figures that lying is okay when it helps somebody. And so our kids would not be able to watch that show anymore. And sadly, many Christians have bought into that idea. Many Christians today think that the Bible teaches that lying's okay if it helps somebody. And they cite passages like, like Rahab for their proof. But the Bible never teaches that lying is okay. When the Bible commends Rahab in Hebrews chapter 11, it never commends her lying lips, but it commends her faith in welcoming the spies. Look it up. But our culture has accepted lying. It teaches lying, and it goes deeper. Our culture expects lying. Isn't that strange? If you hire a contractor to work on your roof, you expect dishonesty at some point, unless it's Jr. Roofing, for those of you Jr. guys in here. If you turn on the news, you expect dishonesty. If you read a biography, you expect exaggeration. If you watch a politician's speech, you expect dishonesty. And if you go to church you might expect the pastor speaking to not be entirely honest. That's scary. Truth is not the norm. Dishonesty and exaggeration and deceit are a very expected part of our culture. A very expected part of our interactions on a regular basis. It's true in your place of employment. And it's true as you interact with people anywhere that you go. And, and all of this is illustrated when we look for places where our culture values truth. We don't find many places. We have to purchase guarantees. We have to make oaths in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We have to make an oath to enlist and serve. These are probably some of the few places that truth is determined To be important in our culture, where our culture affirms the importance of truth. And sadly, truth on a daily basis has been tossed aside. And so our culture makes a distinction. It splits them. There's a distinction between truth in legal situations and truth in everyday life. And because of this, people are totally devastated by the inconsistency in their daily lives. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be. In our passage this morning, we journey back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's the next section we are in, in our Matthew series. And in this section is the subject of taking oaths. Oaths. That's probably not the most exciting topic to keep your attention today. It's certainly not going to keep you riveted like divorce, that sermon, or some of the other highly debated sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But I trust that this lesson can be impactful for you because it does affect all of us. It is very important. It's very important. And I hope that the application by the end of this can reinforce for you truth from the Word of God, reinforce what Jesus is teaching, that it will help you live out just as we sang when we said, teach us, Lord, full obedience in the third verse of that song. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Would you stand with me briefly as I read the word of God? Verse 33, beginning there, it says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Lord, help us understand your word this morning in these moments together. Speak to us, Lord, beyond the words that I'm saying. Speak to us from your spirit. And use your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Why does Jesus bring up taking oaths? Seems like not really a hot topic to us. But why does he bring it up? Well, the reason I think this is central is because Jesus is unfolding what a kingdom heart looks like. He did it with anger. He did it with lust, he did it with marriage issues, and now he's dealing with honesty. He's dealing with honesty. He's describing what the heart of kingdom participants is to be like. And that, in its purest form, by the way, is to be like the heart of the king of the kingdom. Like the heart of Christ. And so I can ask this question, what kind of character, then, if we're we're thinking about the character of the king of the kingdom... What kind of character is the most opposite? Sometimes that helps me when I look at opposites to understand something. What's the most opposite of the the character of the king? Dishonesty. Dishonesty is completely opposite of the character of God. In fact, dishonesty is the most accurate description of the character of the enemy. John 8.44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying, dishonesty, mimics the character of Satan. So we can understand the teaching of Jesus in part to stem from the the satanic problem of lying that is ingrained in human hearts. So that has everything to do with oaths. Because the risk of making an oath is the risk of lying. The problem with oaths is that they can be broken, resulting in sin. And that puts a, a perspective on what Jesus is about to teach. Because in our text today, we'll find Jesus in a culture where the idea of dishonesty has already become acceptable. And so we can understand his teaching to be very important when he speaks about oaths. Why? Well, because he's speaking about honesty, about truth. And we can understand its importance in light of the character of Satan, which is embedded in the heart of man. So for sake of an outline this morning... Um, If you like to take notes, I've broken up our passage into four simple parts. Four simple parts. Let's work through each one briefly this morning. Let's start with Jesus recalling, he recalls a human teaching. Jesus recalls a human teaching. And he does this in verse 33. He says, again you have heard... That it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. So here's a phrase we've been hearing throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said. And so he uses the word again because he's recognizing this isn't the first time he's saying this phrase. Again, you have heard that it was said. That's the phrase. Jesus refers here to something different than the law given through Moses. We don't, Jesus, we don't see Jesus using the phrase, you've heard that it was written, or you've read. Because he's referring to something different here. And it's important for us to note that, mainly because it has a drastic effect on what he's about to say. When Jesus is, what he's really referring to is the oral tradition. The oral tradition, as we've seen before, the oral traditions came about as a result of the Jews who knew they were capable after the exile of, of turning away again from god's law. so the scribes assembled law, assembled laws that were designed to keep the people from coming anywhere near violating the law of Moses, and different schools of rabbis were coming up and teaching and carrying on these laws and even adding to these as well. By the time of Jesus, these oral traditions themselves had been manipulated and abused by the religious leaders who could easily justify ways around them. Think about it this way. This is a simple way to understand it. It's way easier to compromise a law that was given by man than it is to... Find a way around God's law. So Jesus refers to the oral tradition. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Now, this oral tradition, in a way, summarizes several Old Testament teachings. So the, the oral traditions did that. They, they summarized well, in certain cases well, in other cases not well. Um. But they often summarize passages from the Old Testament. It was the wording of the oral tradition that many religious leaders used as a way to get around obedience while still technically holding to the tradition. We'll talk about that in a moment. But um, these Old Testament passages that this oral tradition referred to, I just want to go through a couple of them. Because oaths were permissible in the Old Testament. But there were certain parameters. Here's a few instances uh, where the oral traditions um, were sort of summarized. Um, One such passage is Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Leviticus 19, 12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So, oaths were permitted in the Old Testament, but there were obvious parameters. Mainly that one was never to violate an oath to God. So it was part of the nation's practice to make oaths to Guarantee their veracity by swearing in the the presence of God, in the name of God. And here's what that basically meant it meant that, that you were invoking God as a witness. And consequently, if God is the witness, then God is also the judge. So if someone swore in the presence of God or in the name of God, it had to be true. It had to be true. If someone vowed in, in the name of the Lord to perform a deed, it had to be done. And By the way, that's, that's a lot different than today when people say the, the phrase, I swear to God, or as God is my witness. Why is that different? Well, it's drastically different because in ancient Jewish, the, the ancient Jewish community was ruled and led by God. God's dwelling place was with them in the temple um, or in the tabernacle. In the early stages. And in the early days, God's presence was with them as they wandered and as they settled and eventually in Jerusalem. Their connection to God was different. Um, so it, it it meant something so much more. So if someone's character was unjustly questioned, they could swear in the name of the Lord, and that was that. It was taken as fact. Because God's presence in the tabernacle or in the temple was a severe reality that sealed the deal for the oath. God would be the witness and the judge of the one performing the oath. So its its meaning was much more severe and much more daunting than the way people in our culture swear in God's name. Now... Everything we've just looked at seems fairly, fairly sensible, I think. And even the oral traditions that Jesus quoted don't really seem that problematic. But Jesus does something peculiar. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. Don't do it. And here we come to the next section of our text. Jesus gives an authoritative command. Jesus gives an authoritative command. Here's that that phrase of Jesus' authority. I say to you, I say to you. That's my favorite phrase throughout Jesus' sermon. I love that phrase because Jesus is speaking as one who has authority to declare in God's place. And we know the reason why. Because Jesus is God in human flesh. But the question is, why does Jesus forbid oaths here? The law's allowance of oaths and the impact of God-centered oaths seem to, to make sense and don't appear wrong. Well, if we look a little more closely, we can actually catch something that makes sense. All the difference in understanding Jesus here. Um, Jump back to verse 33, and I think we see this. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, here's my question to you. Do you notice any way around that? Do you notice any way around that? Looking at the oral tradition, can you spot a loophole? Some of you... Uh, Some of you attorneys in here are looking at that pretty closely right now. Right, Devin? (laughs) The religious leaders had figured out a way to keep the law, to keep the oral traditions, and then make oaths that were breakable. How? Well, by swearing on something else. For instance, the religious leaders had figured out that if they swore on something else, they could break the oath and then say, hey, I did not swear on God's name. I swore on my own head or I only pinky promised or I only swore on heaven but not God's name. So by doing that, technically, they could claim that the oral traditions only forbid swearing falsely in God's name because the language was that you must perform to the Lord what you've sworn. So what did they do? They swore by other things and they easily got out of those vows by claiming that it was not in violation of of the oral traditions. And it's kind of sneaky. So it's no no wonder that Jesus says, don't swear. Don't make an oath. Because Jesus knew exactly the ways that the oral traditions were being abused and manipulated. And by the way, this is the exact same kind of thing Jesus is doing with, with murder and adultery And lust? Because people had taken the stance that internal hatred and lust was no big deal. Jesus is really giving God's perspective here. And in line with Matthew's portrayal of the kingdom, the command of Jesus here has everything to do with the kind of heart that accompanies those who are in God's kingdom. So rather than just give the command in verses 34 to 36, Jesus does something very helpful for us. And for the people at that time this is the third part of our text. Jesus gives an ex, an explan, i can't even say that he gives an explanation with the command. He gives an explanation with the command. And this is really helpful because there's four parts to Jesus' explanation. I want to break down each one briefly as we walk through here's the first. Part of Jesus' explanation is that God's dwelling is under His authority. God's dwelling is under His authority. He says in verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. It's the throne of God. In light of what we just observe, uh, we can understand that Jesus is referring to, uh, when He refers to heaven, it must be because... The religious leaders were guilty of using it for oaths. Oaths that they did not intend to keep. But Jesus also provides an explanation of why he says don't do it. He says because it's the throne of God. The throne of God speaks of the very seat of God's authority. What kind of point does that make? What kind of point does that make? Well, to put it plainly, if you're swearing by heaven... You're still making an oath with God as your witness and God as your judge. Because swearing by heaven is to swear by the very throne where God resides. You're not really sidestepping God here. That is the seat of God's authority. It's his throne, so God will be the witness to and the judge of your oath. Look at the next one. God's creation is under His dominion. God's creation is under His dominion. Verse 35. Or by the earth, for it is His footstool. For it is His footstool. The word footstool is a word that that pictures the dominion of a great power. Throughout the Old Testament, we we see God referring to his enemies as his footstool, meaning that God had dominion over those enemies and powers. And so to swear by the earth is to swear by the footstool of God. Well, how does that relate? Well, because it invokes God as the witness and the judge of the oath. It's not really sidestepping God. God. So to swear by God's footstool, the earth, is to swear by something that's under His dominion. It's under the hold of God. So God will be the witness to and the judge of that oath. And Jesus brings up a third one. God's city is under His rule. God's city is under His rule. Again, verse 35. Or by Jerusalem... For it is the city of the great king. Again, this carries the same connotations as the others. The one who swears by Jerusalem swears by the city of the great king. Capital K. That's God. So you're still swearing by something that invokes God as the witness and the judge of the one making the oath. Because if you swear by Jerusalem... You're swearing by the city that's under the rule of the great king. And who's going to be the witness and judge of that oath? The great king himself. So what do, what do each of these combined things tell us? Well, they tell us that to make an oath by one of them means that you're making an oath with God as your witness. And if God's your witness, he will be the judge. So to break that oath is strictly forbidden by God, and it brings severe consequence. Jesus knew That the religious leaders were making oaths that they never intended to keep. And so he goes all the way to saying, Stop making oaths. Don't do it. Don't do it. Look at the last one in verse 36. Really interesting here. God's people are under his power. God's people are under his power. In verse 36, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, obviously, we can go to a salon or you can buy some hair dye and you can change your hair color today, but that's not really Jesus' point. It's interesting that he says, don't swear on your own head, something that was really common for that time. What does Jesus mean? By talking about the inability to change one's hair color. Well, he's talking about what God has created. God's designed for your hair color, and he made you. So basically, Jesus rules out swearing by anything that God has made. Because if God made it, he owns it. And so, whose control is it under? It's under the control of the Maker. So if we put all this together, Jesus forbids swearing by anything because you can't get away from God being the witness to and the judge of your oath. You can't escape it. Either he resides there or he rules it or it's under his control or he's created it and controls it. And just like all of the other passages so far, Jesus is pulling apart the religious leaders' hidden immorality and their falsehood, and here their dishonesty. What he's laying out before his hearers is the kind of heart that's required for kingdom participants. All of this should actually raise a question for us. And if you're thinking this morning, you might have thought of this question. How is it that God swears by his own name? Because doesn't he do that? Well, yes, he does. We see instances of that in Scripture. Let's look at a couple. Genesis 22, 16 and 17. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand it's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate's enemies. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We find an answer to this actually within Scripture. So the answer to the question, God actually communicates to us, um, I love this, Hebrews chapter 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, this is Hebrews 6, 13 to 18, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. to hold fast to the hope set before us. Wow, that is a hugely encouraging passage. God holds true to his word. God holds true to his word always. And I think if there's something in this passage that this passage leads us to think about, leads us to discover, that fact alone is enough encouragement for you to live on today. God holds to his word. However, people are not like God. And our oaths are breakable. And we cannot swear by anything, for God will be the witness and the judge. Why? Because God deeply values honesty. So God does not swear by himself simply because his character is questionable or because he's somehow unreliable. When God swore by himself, he did so to impress on his people the the surety of his promise. Only God can do that perfectly. So Jesus tells the people Not to make oaths. Now, is he completely forbidding all instances of oaths? So, like, if you and I go to court, does that mean we have to say, I can't swear? uh, Because God said don't? Well, no, he's not completely forbidding all instances of oaths. Instead, he's speaking directly against the flippant or careless making of oaths that was all too common in that culture. Specifically among the religious leaders. Jesus is teaching that any oath is of extreme importance. Because anything you swear by is going to fall underneath God's control. Invoking God as the witness and the judge. And so that's Exactly why Jesus concludes with his statement in our text in verse 37. It's here that we come to the last portion of our text. Jesus confirms God's expectation. Jesus confirms God's expectation. He says in verse 37, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. By the way, when Jesus, when I, mean, when I say that Jesus doesn't forbid all oaths, there, there are oaths that we make in marriage, a covenant that we make right in marriage. That's not forbidden by God. Jesus himself was under an oath um, at his trial in Matthew 26. Um, Paul took an oath in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 10. In each of those instances with Paul, he thought it was necessary in communication with people who might not trust him. And certainly God does allow for us to make oaths and vows, but, but God is not lax in his requirement to keep them. To keep them. Jesus is calling his hearers to be people of their word, to be people of integrity. If you're a man or woman of your word, you won't need to seal everything with a promise. You won't have to always make special guarantees in order for people to trust you. To have the kind of heart required of kingdom participants is to have a heart that always speaks what's true. A heart that deals truthfully. Not giving empty promises and taking lightly the honesty that God requires of you. According to God, truth is sacred. So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? I think this has to do with what Jesus closed up when he said, let your yes be yes and no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So I just have three simple, simple applications for you. Three simple ways to, to take this and apply it to your life, because I I do think that the principle that we see here is directly applicable for us. Here's the first thing. Be a man or woman of your word. Be a man or woman of your word. That seems really simple. So I'm going to give you a little test. Okay, let's just do this right now. You can think about this. Don't have to answer out loud. When was the last time that someone made you promise them something? When was the last time that your kids said, do you promise? Do people say that to you sometimes? If so, it might be for a good reason, and it may just be that you have a history of not keeping your word. Do people have to secure like secure your word? Do you have to guarantee stuff? That's that's a good test to know if people's expectation of you is that you won't hold to your word. We need to be people of our word. Second thing, value honesty because God does. Value honesty because God does. God Greatly values honesty. I can't say that enough. Honesty is a sacred thing in God's eyes. And as kingdom citizens, we too must be marked by the kind of integrity that does not require frequent promises or vows. We must not have the kind of character that the world expects. A dishonest and exaggerating, deceitful character. That's Satan's character. Jesus makes clear in his Sermon on the Mount that a kingdom heart is marked by honesty, by truth. And may that be the description of your character, my character today. And then lastly, deal honestly in everyday life. Deal honestly in everyday life. The expectation in our culture is that you will deal honestly in the most important venues of life. Like in court, or in a legal contract, or on your taxes. But those are not everyday life. Unless you're an accountant. If you're a child of God, if you're a participant in God's kingdom... Your life should be marked by the character of the great king. And that means that your everyday life, the little conversations, the brief encounters, the way you relate to your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your church family, that must be a reflection of the honesty that you see in God's character. And how is that different than being a man or woman of your word? Well, here's how. Being a man or a woman of your word has to do with what you say. Following up your words with actions that are true to what you said. But dealing honestly is to be truthful even when you've not given your word. It means living in a way that's not deceitful. How do we get that from this text? Well, Jesus was talking about oaths, right? Actually, Jesus is describing the heart of kingdom Participants, And if you're guilty of murder when it's only in your heart. If you're guilty of adultery when you've only lusted in your heart. If you're divorced in your heart when no contract's been broken. You can be sure that you're guilty of dishonesty when your heart is bent on being deceitful. So a person can be deceitful in their heart. Leading to a deceitful action without saying a word. And what we get primarily from our text this morning is that God values honesty. And God will be the witness and the judge of the honesty or the deceit that characterizes your life. So I'll close with this. Will you value honesty? Will you seek to be truthful? To be a man or woman of your word. Will you revere God as the witness and the judge of your character? If we claim to be participants in his future glorious kingdom. Then we must seek to emulate the character of the king. And that's why our theme for Matthew is this, because Jesus is the Messiah King, we must worship and follow Him. God, thank You for our time in Your Word this morning. Lord, from Your Word we can see that You value honesty, the truth. And You require that we deal honestly, that we are people of our word. Lord, help us today as we go home to live lives that are not deceitful, to live out what we've heard today, not just with promises and oaths, but specifically in the honesty of our character. I pray that you would help us continue to grow to match the character of you, the great King. Please do this great work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.